recently I came across a, a church ad and I want to read it word for word to you. And I quote, tell you what, we'll make it easy. Come hang out with us this Sunday. If it's been a while since you've been to church, let me inform you on what has changed. Church music is no longer horrible. It's actually fun, uplifting, and to be honest, it pretty much rocks. The pastor isn't boring, stiff, or out of touch with reality. The message will be funny, thought-provoking, and you'll leave feeling better than when you came. Our kids' church is crazy fun, super safe, and is full of teachers who are absolutely committed to making sure your kids not only have a blast, but learn to love Jesus at the same time. We'll hook you and your guest up with your favorite coffee drink and even save you a seat if you'd like. Oh, and we don't have pews or pink carpets anymore because it's 2019, end quote. At FFC, we strive to be a biblically faithful church. We do not look at the largest churches around and mimic what they're doing. They are not our guide. Scripture is our guide. We're not built on gimmicks. And some of these church gimmicks are, are maddening. Maddening. Things like, um, you, have to go, you have to go to my church on Sunday. They, they give out free pumpkin spice lattes to everyone who comes in the month of October. Really? Yeah, your, your kids will love it too. They have rock climbing walls and, and you, have a, you have a baby, right? They have a zip line that launches your baby from the nursery straight to the auditorium as soon as the service is finished. It's just edgy. And, and, and you remember back in the day they used to do baptisms, right? Well... Well, they have water slides. You can be baptized on the 20-foot water slide or the 80-foot water slide, head first or feet first. I mean, it's, it's your choice. It's really like just going to a concert in Nashville. You can barely hear yourself think. The light show is off the chain. I mean, the third verse, when the lights went from green to red, it, it, it blew my mind. This is what's going on. There's actually one church near us that um, gave out free donuts to everyone who sat on the front row. Now look, we could use that around here as well, but this is madness. If you're not a Christian, we have more respect for you than to lure you like a fish. We're not interested in seducing you by the shallow or superficial. We have a deep conviction about how church should be done, but we also have a deep conviction about what your soul needs. And you need more than a pumpkin spice latte. You need the gospel. Starbucks can supply the former. We supply the latter. You need more than ear candy. You need soul food. We're not built on gimmicks, nor are we built on the gifts of a public speaker. It's not our desire to have a boring or stiff speaker. But people don't come for the speaker. They come for the word. You can build a crowd around the personality, but you can only build the church around the word. Recently, I was in the hospital in Nashville. I had to go in for a minor surgery. A nurse came into my room, and she wheeled my bed to the floor where the procedure took place. When I arrived, there were uh, three nurses prepping the room before the doctor came in. I began to talk to each one and try to get their life story. They said, uh, you're like the chattiest guy we've ever had in here. But what, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. Really? Yes. Well, you're so young, I imagine you have one of those young hipster churches, right? What, what does a typical Sunday look like? And I said, well, we, we come in, 
And we begin with a call to worship because we think the first word spoken should be God's welcome of us and not our welcome of others. And then we have the call to worship from scriptures from one of the, the Psalms. Then I quote a historic prayer over our people. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. So every Sunday, our people are reminded that this word is inerrant, inspired, holy, and it needs to be written on our hearts. Then we sing a song. Then we have a scripture reading. Then we sing a song. Then we have another scripture reading. Then we sing another song. And our goal with the songs is not to rock it out. It's to settle us, to prepare us to... For the preaching of the word. And then I said, then I preached for 50 minutes. And their eyes got really big. <laughs> and I said, and then we have another song. And then we close with an ancient benediction. Uh, the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation says, thanks be to God. And she says, no fog machines. <laughs> I said, no. And she said, but you pick a topic and you find a verse to support your topic, Right? And I said, I used to do that before my doctoral degree when I developed the conviction that the systematic verse-by-verse -verse preaching of the word is, is what people need. So we preach through entire books of the Bible. I, I'm the butler, not the chef. I don't make the meal, I just bring it to the table. And she said, wow, I didn't think churches like that existed anymore. She said, I want to come to your church on Sunday. And I was feeling good about this talk. And I said, you should come. And here's why you should come to my church on Sunday. And then about that time, the medicine kicked in, and I fell asleep mid-sentence, <laughs> never to see her again. Uh, we are not trying to fill a niche. We are attempting to be obedient to what the scripture says a church should be. The day is coming when Christians will be blown away to walk into a building, and there's no entertaining speaker, no light shows, no performance, just a man standing in front of his flock, feeding them the word. And the man isn't even that gifted in public speaking, but the people are taking notes. I mean, they're eating it up. And, and when they sing, you can actually hear the congregation singing and not just the band performing. They view singing as a vital part of discipleship. I want to introduce you to a first century church, the church of Colossae. And I want you to notice what characterizes this church because it's none of the things in the previous ad I read. In fact, it's entirely the opposite. I can describe this church in one word. One word packed with meaning, one word packed with implications, one word packed with responsibility, one word packed with mercy. And the one word is family. A church family. And some of you are desperately in need of one. If I were to give our study of the book of Philemon a theme, it would be this. We are family. I can't even say that statement without, without uh, going back to 1979, the song by Sister Sledge. We are family. You remember this? I got all my sisters with me. Uh, we, we learn a lot about the family of faith from this book. So let's do a flyover of our three-week study in Philemon before we parachute into the book. Week one, today, we see that families need encouragement. This is found in verses one through seven. In verses one through seven, there's a shot of encouragement, an infusion of inspiration. Family should strengthen family. And something is off when family is weakening family. Then next week, week two, we're gonna see that family needs to work, families need to work through their problems. Verses eight through 16. 
These verses are an instruction manual on resolving personal conflict between Christians. Every family has conflicts, and you need to learn how to address them in a gospel-centered way. Two men are actually put on blast in front of the church, one in an obvious way and one in a, in a quiet way. Then week number three, we'll end our study with families need to partner together. Philemon verses 17 through 25. Families believe that people can change. Families get over hurt and they partner together. In a way, we have a first century church ad in the first seven verses. And, and here's what we hear from the church ad. Rattling chains on a leg, off-key singing on a couch, and a ragtag band of fledgling believers encouraging one another. Let's look first at rattling chains on a leg. We're walking through the book of Philemon, or as the uh, J- Jamaican theologian calls it, Philemon. I expected more from that. I'm going to be honest with you. I expected more. That's all right. I forgive you. I just accepted the second service laughs and you don't. All right. All right. Philemon is nestled between two books, Titus and Hebrews. Unfortunately, this little book is often lost between the giants on either side. It's one of five single chapter books of the Bible. It has 25 verses in it. 335 words in the original Greek, six paragraphs. I call it the minor prophet of the New Testament, the gospel in minor key. You can read it in three minutes. You're like, Kyle, why in the world are you taking three weeks to walk through it? Uh, Because you never plunge the gospel depths of this book. You come up each time with handfuls of mercy and grace. Let's begin reading Philemon verse one. Paul, let's stop there. We could be here a while. <laughs> Immediately, we're introduced to the human author. Paul was the first century follower of Christ. He, he used to hate Christians. He hated the family. He used to be involved in gang violence against the family. Luke says in chapter 9, verse 1, that he was breathing out threats and murder against the followers of Christ. So Paul, like a war horse, viciously snorts and he smells the battle. He has a taste for the blood of Christians. Calvin calls him a wild and ferocious beast. Luke paints him as more wild animal than human being. But here's what Paul didn't know. He thought he was going to Damascus to capture scattered Christians, but he was about to be captured himself by Christ. In the middle of a road, he sees a a great light. It's a light unlike any other light. Paul is being undone by this light, the righteousness of this light, the holiness of this light. He saw the light no more in darkness. No more a night. If, if Paul could come to Jesus in the middle of a road, you can come to Jesus in the middle of a church service. That's why we place more emphasis on, on this light than those lights. Because this light will wreck you. This light will change you. This light will redeem you. This light is Jesus Christ. So Paul, a first century gangster, a murderer, now a Christian. Now writing books, don't ever underestimate the reach of God's grace. As Francis Thompson once penned, Saul was hunted by the hound of heaven. I just wonder, is there a Paul here this morning? The lion of the tribe of Judah hunts not to kill you, but to save you. Not to ruin your life, but to show you a life that you never knew existed. The life of Christ in you.
Well, Paul goes on to be the greatest church planter in the history of the world. He travels through uh, modern Greece and western Turkey, church planting, church after church after church. Uh, he also wrote a lot of letters. This is actually his most private letter. It's also his shortest. Some call it Paul's postcard. I call it Paul's tweet. Notice as the verse continues, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now we find out that Paul's in prison. So what happened? Well, he was arrested for preaching the gospel. He's arrested in southern Syria. And his trial is in Italy in the city of Rome. So he's making, he's making quite, a, quite a journey here. And the journey is uh, unique. Acts unpacks the voyage filled with snake bites and shipwrecks. Paul spends two years imprisoned in Rome. He wasn't in a dungeon, but he was under house arrest. Sort of like Martha Stewart was back in the day. Ankle bracelet, but you can enjoy the company of friends. He was kept under guard 24 hours, chained by a leg to a guard. Six different guards chained to Paul at any given day. It was a terrible assignment for the guards because they were restricted to do with whatever the prisoner wanted to do. So he's constantly writing letters and he's constantly just giving the gospel to them. Notice that Paul says, I'm a prisoner for or of Jesus Christ. Which isn't technically accurate because he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But Paul knows that the chains around his legs are there by sovereign design. And God makes no mistakes. He deployed Paul to that prison for such a time as this. And Paul is finding his identity in Jesus Christ, not, not in the chains around his leg. But there's more to this. It seems like in every other letter he writes, he is Paul the Apostle. But notice here he's writing to a specific person. He calls himself Paul the prisoner. Nine times Paul is the apostle. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1 1. 2 Corinthians 1 1. Galatians 1 1. Ephesians 1 1. Colossians 1 1. 1 Timothy 1 1. 2 Timothy 1 1. Titus 1 1. Paul the apostle. So why here Paul the prisoner? This is not the language of strangers or business partners. This is a family. This is family language. He's writing home. He's writing to his faith family. And he's putting aside the mention of rank. See, families remove formalities. And this church, more than most churches in the U.S., will have keen insight into this. Because out there, you are officer and enlisted. You're E1, E2, E3, E4, E5, E6, E7, E8, O1, O2, O3, O4, O5. But when you come in here, it's family. Are you an officer or are you enlisted? I'm washed by the blood. While in Rome, lots of believers eagerly ministered to Paul's needs. Walking beside him, perhaps giving him some food and drink. He was glad to see welcoming faces. And we're introduced to one of the welcoming faces at the end of verse 1. Notice as the verse continues. And Timothy, our brother. Now there's lots of people with Paul. There's lots of people with him in prison we know from the end of this book that Mark is with him, visiting him. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are with him. We know from Colossians that Tychicus is with him, along with Jesus. Not the Savior Jesus, but, but another one. It was a common name, like Mike. And Epaphras was with him. 
So why did Timothy get the shout out here at the beginning when there were a ton of people with him? It's not because Timothy is the co-author. It's because Timothy is going to carry on the work when Paul leaves the scene. So he's putting him before the people. We're actually looking over the shoulder of Paul as he writes. And we hear, we hear with each movement the rattling of chains. And then we actually hear him rattling the chains in the letter. I'm a, I'm a prisoner. And you're probably picturing Paul like some sort of Iron Man. Good looking guy, winsome. I mean, that's why he was so successful in church planting. But you would be wrong. A second century author described Paul as a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, eyebrows meeting, and a hooked nose. Now let's rewrite the church ad, but do it using something novel, like the Bible. And here's what we'd have. Hey, come to, come to our church in Colossae. Our pastor looks like a little hobbit with a bald head and bow legs. And he has this long hairy caterpillar over his eyes. And his nose is so big that when he does a backstroke at the beach, the lifeguard evacuates thinking it's a shark. And by the way, it's not easy to get into this community. You may be jailed or even killed if you join us. Hear, hear the chain rattling. Now that's a church ad. We're going to run that this week for our church. If, if you're not a Christian, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just to yourself. Is what you're living for worth dying for? You are sitting beside people who would have their throat slit before recanting Christ. That would make me curious about this Christ. First, we see rattling chains on a leg. Secondly, we see off-key singing on a couch. Notice as verse 1 continues, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Paul is writing, you, you could translate it, to my good friend Philemon. It appears that Paul first met Philemon years earlier in Ephesus, modern day Turkey. Paul preached in Ephesus for two years in a college hall, uh, a courtyard, and he preached during the heat of the day. Um, while all the students were on break. So assuming Paul kept one day for rest and worship uh, and, and spoke the other six days of the week, we know his lecture time was five hours a day for two years. So that's 3,120 hours of gospel argument. That's a, that's a lot of sermons. I've heard of Terminator? Paul is the Sermonator. And he planted a church in Ephesus and experience what could be called nothing other than a great awakening. So what does a great awakening look like? J.I. Packer in an essay on Jonathan Edwards notes 10 elements of a great awakening. Here are the 10. God comes down. God word pierces. Man's sin is seen. Christ's cross is valued. Change goes deep, which he illustrates uh, with the burning of magic books. Love breaks out. Joy fills hearts. Each church becomes itself. The lost are found. Finally, 10, Satan keeps pace. Don't ever underestimate an open Bible in front of people. Now, we don't know for sure, but it appears that Paul led Philemon to Christ during those two years in Ephesus. 
And then somewhere Philemon evidently moved 100 miles from Ephesus to Colossae. And he's now a lay leader in this church. And he appears to have a large bank account because he houses the local church. He has to have a big house to do that. We find out later in the book he has a, he has a staff. So he's got a lot of money. This, this man is what a church planner would want to have with him. He's generous, he's loving, he's encouraging, he's a workhorse. As one of our uh, former elders here used to say before he pastored another church, can't work, man. That's a man you can build a church on. So he's funding a lot of ministry. He feels a personal responsibility to financially help this church. And this was just built into the members of the, of the first century. We, we, had a, we had a couple in this church that joined, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a year ago. We went through all of our processes that we have in place for membership. And then after they joined, they, they wrote Sarah and, and me. And this is what they said. We want to commit to, we will commit to pray for you and the other elders. We will love you and Sarah. I know you don't talk about it, but you have battles. It's not easy pastoring. We just wanted you to know that we love you and we will support the work this church is doing every week. We financially commit to support this work. God has called us here and we will give. And I read it and I couldn't help but just to start crying. And I read it like a hundred times. I get a lot of letters. Most of them death threats. Not a lot of letters like this. And I just started crying like God has brought us another Philemon family. Paul says, Philemon, I love you. Then notice as verse 2 continues, and Aphia, our sister. Now most scholars, ancient and present, believe Aphia to be Philemon's wife. She's a lady that has clear gifts of hospitality. She's having people in and out of her home. She's cooking meals. She's meeting ladies, having Bible studies. She's discipling. She's a blessing to the local church. Her arms reveal it, scars from cooking for all the house parties. Her walls reveal it, crayons from you know, other kids, church kids. You know those church kids coloring on the wall. We, we, have a, we actually have a lot of Aphias here at our church. To some it comes natural. To others it's a struggle. But they realize their home is not their own. It belongs to Christ. Notice the language, our sister, that's familial language. He's writing to family here. Verse 2 continues, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. These same scholars tell us that Archippus was Philemon's son. He wasn't the planting pastor in Colossae. That was Epaphras. But he appears to be the one now who's teaching the word week after week. You say, what happened to the founding pastor? We'll find out in week 3. But the Bible does not shy away from using military images to describe the Christian life. Paul, therefore, refers to Archippus as our fellow soldier. Archippus was a spiritual military man, a green beret for the gospel. He took a lot of hits, but he stumbled forward. I was studying this week and just wondered, what happened to this family? Like, I know everything's wonderful now, but how did it end for them? Church, church tradition says Archippus was stabbed to death by a mob during the time of Nero. Like many soldiers of the cross, he apparently died on the battlefield of faith. Church tradition says his mother and father was stoned to death. Come join this community. It may cost you your life. See, Paul's church ad looks so, so different than ours. End of verse 2. 
and the church in your house. Now, the way this verse is translated, it makes it seem like the church is in Archippus' house. But it's clearer in the original Greek than it is in the English. Here's how I would translate it so you could see it. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and then notice the line, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And then at the end, it's talking again, pointing back to Philemon and the church in your house. See, it's referring to Philemon's house. He's the one that's housing the church. Now, let's peek into this church. I think they have pink carpet. Can't see it in the English, it's in the Greek. They have pink carpet. They sit on a couch and they sing. They don't have a piano or a guitar. I imagine they had some tambourines. They're singing their lungs out. That they were gifted in the area of finances and volunteers, but not in the area of musicianship. They're all off key. But it doesn't matter. Jesus takes the off-key singing and closes it in his righteousness and then he presents it to the Father, which is what actually makes it acceptable to the Father. It wasn't uncommon in the first century for churches to meet in homes or in an open area like in Philippi or in an open hall like Tyrannius in, in Ephesus. They would find any old place to meet. You, you did not find buildings devoted solely to Christian worship until the third century. Apparently the early church turned the world upside down and they did it without elaborate buildings, coffee bars, techno raves, or even pews. See, the building is not the church. We, we are not meeting in the church. We are meeting as the church. We are not building the church over there. And it's exciting now, isn't it? Each week there's more stuff happening. But we're not building the church over there. We're, we're building a building over there. Right now we are preaching the word and building the church. You, 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 have you heard the old kids song? My kids don't even know this because uh, I guess it's old. I don't know. But um, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up and see all the people. Well, it should go like this. Here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up and see, see the church. The church is the people. There are numerous references in the New Testament to house churches and their, and their host. So we've got a house church here. We've got the host, Philemon. But it, we also have another one, Gaius at Rome in Romans 16. Nympha at Laodicea in Colossians 4. Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla at Rome. Lydia at Philippi, Mary at Jerusalem, Jason at Thessalonica. You may be asking, man, man, they're everywhere in the Bible. Why doesn't Faith Family Church just be a house church? It's a real simple answer to that because you have too many kids. There's not a house in this state that could fit all of your kids. Now, let me address a common statement I hear. Why do we need organized churches? Why don't we just go back to house churches? It's, it's more organic. And I'm glad you asked. So let me just correct the question first. House churches, they were organic, but they were also organized. They had structure. They had meeting schedule. And what we do here is identical to what they do, except we, we do it in a bigger room. So buildings aren't sinful. They, they are useful. They are wise. We, we also meet in houses for our small groups. Now, house churches are having a resurgence now. Resurgence. 
10 people in a, in a home and it's a church. And some of you, you come to me from time to time and ask, is that really a church? Is it, I mean, this is 10 people meeting in a house. Is that, is that really a church? Well, well, let me summarize. They are a church if they meet certain biblical marks. Mark Dever wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Not the nine marks of a healthy church, not the definite article there. People take that book and they're like little ravaging dogs and they go crazy, chew on furniture. We've had them here and I say, look, I'm gonna, you got to calm down, tie you to a pole outside, wipe that drool off of your mouth. Uh, if you've never met these type of people, you're thinking, no, he's rambling. If you have, you're thinking, amen. All right, but, but no... There's no article. It's just simply nine marks. It's, it's a good book, all right? So don't let some of, the, some of the people who take it to the extreme keep you away from the book. Here, here are the marks, nine marks. Uh, expositional preaching, where the vibe of the text is the vibe of the sermon. I don't say where the point of the text is the point of the sermon because the, there could be many points in the text. So if you just reduce it to one point. So where the vibe of the text is the vibe of the sermon, expositional preaching, biblical theology, do they teach sound doctrine? In China, house churches are exploding, but they have little consistency in biblical theology. Now, a lot of our Chinese brothers are working hard to change that. A biblical understanding of the gospel, not a prosperity gospel, not an easy believism, but the genuine gospel. A biblical understanding of conversion. Does the church teach that people need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God? Does the church teach that in order to become a Christian, a person must repent of sin and trust in Christ? A a biblical understanding of evangelism. Evangelism is not a program that I give you. It's not like you you walk to some of the elders, you walk to Dan and be like, Dan, I, I need somebody to evangelize. No. Evangelize your group. Biblical understanding of evangelize. Evangelization, that's a command on your shoulders. Biblical church membership. Does it encourage members to fulfill the biblical one another's? There's tons of one another commands all throughout the scriptures. I'm not saying everyone signed a church covenant like we do. I'm not saying that. I am saying there was, there was some recognition. I don't know what it was. Handshake, kiss on the cheek, raise your hand, something. We're a part of this membership. And American individualism has corrupted the thinking of Christians. It's like we, we think there's a possibility, a whole category of just me and Jesus. And you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's always we and Jesus. And so it's an, it's an arrogant, arrogance in our part to think that we don't need to be a member of a church. All right, biblical church discipline. Does a church lovingly, patiently practice church discipline, church correction? Biblical discipleship and growth. Growing as a Christian should be normal, not exceptional. But, it, but it's too often exceptional. Like we say things like, oh, that person, they have grown so quickly. In the... why, why are we saying that? Because it's exceptional and it's not the norm. It should be the norm. Then finally, biblical church leadership. And this is where a lot of house churches in the States lack. They're, they're not led by godly qualified men, elder, elder bishop pastor. They're not led by them. Now, a building doesn't make you a church. Obviously, there are a lot of churches that have really nice buildings and they hit maybe two of these markers. And although they may have ads saying they're a church, they're, they're not a biblical church. Notice verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I often sign my letters just like this. 
grace and peace. Paul wants his letters to be a means of grace. They result in peace. Peace of heart, peace in the church, peace in the family. Grace was the Greek greeting. Peace was the Hebrew greeting. And Paul is combining the two. It would be like you combining the German greeting with the Southeast United States greeting. So instead of saying uh, grace and peace, you say, Guten Morgen. Good morning, y'all. See, German and, and, look, I'm not even, the second service, they laugh at this stuff. We, we have, we actually have someone here who speaks German and she's going to be like, no, she's going to rip me later. That's not how you pronounce it. Where does this grace and peace come from? Notice the text. God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is blasphemous to you if you do not believe that Jesus was God. Because Paul says they're on the same level. And, and I love what, what is called here the full majestic title of our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the you in verse 3. Grace to you. This is not saying just Philemon, grace and peace to you. The you here is plural. So the letter is personal. Nobody's denying that. But it's meant to be public knowledge to the church family. The you is plural. So everyone that I'm mentioning in the letter, grace and peace to you. So the letter is to Philemon, but also to the whole church. Why? It could be that Paul is going to say something to Philemon that Philemon may have a hard time obeying without the help and accountability of the faith family. And the church will oversee the letter. And then finally we arrive at the third movement in the text. A ragtag band of fledgling believers encouraging one another. Notice verse 4. And I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In the original language we have a, a grammatical crisscross. In the text, it seems like it's love and faith toward Jesus and also love and faith toward the saints. It's, it's a lot clearer in the English. It's a grammatical crisscross. Love to all the saints and faith to the Lord Jesus. So the faith is it's not in people. The faith is in Christ and the love is, is to the saints. The, the faith in Christ causes the love to the saints. I don't know why more translators don't clear that up, but Philemon was a loving man. He housed traveling preachers. He, he found ways to love on people, all people. His love was not narrow and restrictive. It was broad and encompassing. It was for all the saints. Paul hears reports about this man's love a thousand miles away in Rome. Jesus Christ enlarges the heart when he cleanses it. Paul prayed for this loving man. If you're not a follower of Christ, does intercessory prayer seem strange to you? That I would pray to God for someone else. That seems strange. Believer, what Christian have you prayed for today? What Christian have you prayed for this week? If you're getting, to mo if you're getting ready to move... Are you praying for those who are staying? See, we often only pray for those who are like us, not those unlike us. So ladies, have you prayed for the men in the church? Men, have you prayed for the children in the church? 
Have you prayed for people of opposite political affiliations? Have you Americans prayed for your Asian brothers? Are you praying daily for your pastors? Because we, we will give, we will stand before God with our care of your souls. Praying for others is a vital part of your Christian life. It's a vital part of your growth. We actually email our members here, um, membership with, with names and pictures so you can obey this command. But I think we all must admit that our prayers do not sound a whole lot like the prayers we read in the Bible. And it's not that our prayers are bad or wrong, but they lack substance. The substance we see in the scriptures. I want you to notice that the text takes it even further. Uh, not only are you praying for them, but are you pointing out evidences of grace in the lives of other Christians in your local church? Why is it easier for me to recognize the wrong in others instead of recognizing the gospel in others? What would this body be like if every day every person in the church stopped and either called or texted or emailed or better face-to-face, God forbid that ever happened, face-to-face told someone else in the church, I just want to point out some evidences of grace that I've seen in your life recently. You may want to get a list of people this week. You've seen it. You've even commented on it, but you haven't told them. Tell them. Philemon reveals, even if someone's love and faith is exemplary, they still need encouragement from the community of believers. Think of how encouraging it was for Philemon to receive this letter from his spiritual hero that led him to Christ in Ephesus. For some of you, what what would it be like if John Piper wrote you and commended your labor? Or John MacArthur or Ligon Duncan? Or ladies, if Rosaria Butterfield wrote you? Gloria Furman. This is encouragement from a a spiritual hero. Notice verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, Alistair Begg uh, says almost every word of this verse is debated. Douglas Moo has the gold standard commentary on Philemon says, This verse is universally recognized as the most difficult in Philemon. So what do we do when we come to a hard verse? We skip it. No, of course not. No, We roll up our sleeves and we go to work. Notice that verse 4, 5, and 6 are one sentence. And that complicates the, that complicates the situation. Uh, if it were me, I, I ran through it, I, I would make it five sentences. Why? Because English is allergic to long sentences. It's difficult for us to process all the information. Like, that has to be a run-on somewhere. And I want to try to clothe this in simplicity. I'm hitting the major theme of this verse the last week of our study, but this, this is what it's saying. My, my prayer is that our mutual fellowship in the gospel will bring about explosive fruit. Explosive fruit in your life, explosive fruit in Colossae, explosive fruit in this house church where, where you need to find a larger venue. Notice that as it continues in verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Refreshing Philemon. That's what we need to nickname him. Refreshing Philemon. John MacArthur says the, the word refresh is a military term that speaks of an army resting from a march. 
Philemon brought troubled people rest and renewal. He was a, a peacemaker, a cold glass of water on a hot day. All right, let me, um, let me back away from the text here. You're like, are you going to typically give us your eight applications again? No applications today. All right, breathe deeply. And just smile. It's not going to kill you, I promise. Let me back away from the text. Uh, Caesar Hadrian. Remember him? He became Caesar of Rome around 117. He was a religious man, but not a Christian. And he became weirded out by this small but very rapidly growing cult called the Way. We call it Christianity. And he sent a man to get to the bottom of what made us, as the people of God, distinct. So he sends a spy out to, to check out this ragtag band of people. And the spy's name was Aristides. In a letter back to Caesar, Aristides described the ragtag band of brothers and sisters. And his words are as insightful in the 21st century as they were in the 2nd century. He wrote, and I quote, But the Christians, O king, have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, from whom they received commandments, which they engraved upon their minds, and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear witness, nor embezzle. They honor father and mother. They show kindness. And whenever they judge, they judge uprightly. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins. And their daughters are modest. And their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. Further, if one of the other of them have bondman or bondwoman or children through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. And they love one another. And they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or inflicted on account of the name of the Messiah, all of them eagerly minister to his necessity. Now, I'm sure some of you thought, Kyle, you're being, that's why you're not laughing, because you thought, Kyle, you're way too critical with these churches earlier. Way too critical. Look, I'm not questioning their motives. I know what the goal is. I know their goal is for non-Christians not to feel weirded out. But my pushback is this. Maybe Caesar Hadrian's need to be a little weirded out by the chain on a leg, the off-key singing on a couch, and the ragtag band of fledgling believers encouraging one another. Could it be something about that distinct group? that draws people to Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.